Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Here's to greater possibilities together. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach you, put this all in perspective. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC. Tweet me at Jim Kramer. How do we interpret today's bruising with the Dow plummeting 799 points, S&P plunging 3.24 percent, and the Nasdaq nosediving 3.8 percent? Is it already too late to engineer a soft landing? Did the Fed misjudge the economy? Did the financial models betray them, go awry? Or is this move driven by the worries that the president's positive statements about a trade deal with China might turn out to be some truthful hyperbole? My take could be one, could be both. Let's get some things straight, though, right here. Let's get some context. There were many people who believed the president's comments about the talks with China that they went well. And why not? He put out Larry Kudlow, his chief economic advisor. He put out Steve Mnuchin, his treasury secretary, to tell us just that. They made us feel confident that the Chinese really were ready to deal and would show their good faith by buying a lot of American machinery, agricultural produce, oil and gas. Kudlow Mnuchin let it be known that rather than that, that rather than our tariffs going from 10 percent to 25 percent on January 1st, the negotiators just got an additional 90 days to work something out before that increase would take effect. But just like when the president was the boss on The Apprentice, where I served several times as a judge, this thing is full of twists and turns and drama. The next twist, we learned that Bob Lighthouser, all right, Lighthouser is a real China hawk, that Bob Lighthouser will be in charge of the negotiations, and the 90-day tolling has already started three days ago. Two teams duke it out. Only one can win. Wait a second. It's actually really a much more of a mixture of The pr- Apprentice and Howie Mandel's deal or no deal. Deal, deal, no deal, deal no deal, no deal. Which, by the way, comes back tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern on CBC. Mnuchin and Kudlow want a deal because it would be good for business. Lighthizer and his doppelganger Peter Navarro want no deal, because for them, this whole struggle isn't really about trade at all. It's about American hegemony and showing the rise, slowing the rise of China as a global superpower by not funding that rise with our uh, imports from China. And that's been Navarro's fixation for ages. And I got to tell you, who can blame him? Say what you will about the United States. We've done plenty of ill-advised things over the years, but we don't publish our plans for world domination. Navarro wants China to change its whole trajectory. Lighthouse wants China to stop stealing American intellectual property. They're the protectionists in the administration, and they're not concerned with selling more soybeans or liquefied natural gas. The president seems to actually enjoy these face-offs. They've become a style. The White House is the Thunderdome. Two policies enter, one policy leaves. But the markets crave certainty, which means they hate this kind of master blaster Mad Max confrontation. There's your context. So now we have maximum uncertainty. That makes people want to sell. That's how money managers view the situation. They also feel like they've been had. 
This is not some reality show, for heaven's sake. It's real life, real jobs on the line, real economy at stake. While the president had a huge hit with The Apprentice, governing the most powerful nation on Earth is more serious than going to the top four to learn who's been fired. I think it's starting to dawn on major league money managers that the president, maybe they misjudged him. Maybe he simply doesn't take this stuff seriously enough to be considered dependable, even as what really matters is the ratings, or the equivalent of, which means the White House version of The Apprentice and his base. His base. However, as as bad as the confusion on trade was, there's more to this story. I'm talking about the Fed. Many money managers take their cue from the multi-trillion dollar U.S. bond market. Right now, the bond market is flashing red, meaning it's saying that there's not enough loan demand. There's something wrong. Something's about to go wrong. It's the future. Yet the Federal Reserve is dead set on interest rates this month, raising them, raising this in December, right? Something that many people are now looking at these yield curves, so to speak, and saying it's going to push us over the edge. (laughs) Unthinkable to the Fed, though. We got a serious dilemma here. We had banker after banker come out today and say things are just fine, not to worry. We have John Williams, the president of the influential Federal Reserve Bank of New York, saying that a strong economy warrants further rate hikes. We have lots of commentators talking to us about how everything's pretty strong, rosy even, and you shouldn't be worrying about what interest rates are saying. Just ignore them. They tell us the real fear at this moment is higher wages and full employment. To me, they sound like they've lost their minds. They know nothing! Typically, you don't get such a stark contrast. The Fed says things are going gangbusters with little risk. The interest rate barometer says, be afraid, be very afraid. I don't get it. The bankers historically can't be relied on as they've been known to talk the book, meaning they are preternaturally positive. Their loan books show, in many cases, record load defaults for customers. I, I, to that degree, I don't blame them. Uh, but their stocks are trading at or near historic lows versus their balance sheets. And their earnings may be about to fall apart when they need to start paying you more for your deposits than they can charge for loans, which is what's going to happen if the Fed keeps tightening and this yield curve keeps getting more and more tortured, which some say is axiomatic with recession. All right, so how about the companies? The manufacturers I talk to are adamant. The world is slowing. Their orders, for the most part, are slowing, too. They're getting concerned. No panic, but they're concerned. What would make them sound the alarm? Almost all the international companies are against the tariffs and want to do business with China. Whether or not that's the right thing for America. Now, if you're a large CEO of a large multinational, it's definitely the right thing. Unless you're in the steel business, so to speak. Uh, You want to do what's right for the bottom line, for your shareholders. They don't care about geopolitical. Uh, They care about making money. That's what they think is their charter. Domestic companies are worried about housing prices, which are headed down. They're worried about the stock market, which is plummeting. They're worried about new business formation and whether confidence being shaken by President Trump's real-life version of The Apprentice meets deal no deal. Me, I'm concerned that the Fed just doesn't get how important its words are. All these Federal Reserve officials should simply hush up and let the chairman do the talking. They are sowing a lot of uncertainty, too. Talk about your region, maybe. Talk about business conditions in your states. But don't make sweeping declarations that only confuse people. Now, few in the Fed ever want to say that the economy could be less uh, robust than they think when employment is so low. I mean, right? The unemployment is incredibly low. So I get that. They don't want to look like idiots. They're afraid. They're afraid they might end up looking like fools. 
the books, the old models they have, they tell them you have to raise interest rates and raise them aggressively when unemployment is this low. These central bankers are deathly afraid of a 3% wage growth uh, leading to maybe out-of-control inflation. That's really their fear. That's their big fear. The Fed isn't thinking about how Toll Brothers just told us they had the lowest orders in the house business in four years. They aren't thinking about stores with no cashiers, okay, like Jeff Bezos is. They aren't debating what the, what the cloud does to white-collar employment, basically put a cap on all sorts of wages and, of course... Fire a huge number of people. They're not thinking about what GM and Ford are doing to blue-collar employment. Instead, they're simply saying Friday's employment number is going to be very strong, and we don't like to look bad, like we're soft on wage inflation. That's the wrap. Now, you could argue that when you see the stocks of all the major and minor banks, all the major and minor semiconductors, all the major and minor technology stocks, all the major and minor industrials going lower, maybe the Fed is fretting about the wrong thing. Who knows? But the bottom line is this. The president's worrying people. The Fed is worrying people. And yet somehow they both think they're being reassuring. They couldn't be more wrong. Glenn in North Carolina. Glenn. Big booyah to you, Tim, from North Carolina. I've got to be one of your oldest and most faithful viewers. I've been watching you since 2005. I record every episode, so I never Uh, miss. You're very kind. Thank you so much. Thank you. Jim, I'm I'm looking at adding more dividend-paying, high-quality stocks because at 73 years old, those that may only come in in the long haul, I may not be here when that haul arrives. Understood. Which causes me to look at symbol NLY. This has a 13-plus billion market cap. And it's paying an amazing 11.95% uh, dividend. I know Jim's big red flag on dividends that are high is can they sustain right. them? And I went back and I looked at a 20-year chart. And with the exception of 05 and 06, which were, uh, they paid a dividend, but it wasn't as significant as right. others, uh, it's done real well. Well, yeah, but Glenn, let's consider the arithmetic here, okay? And thank you for the kind words. But it yields about 12, but the stock's down 15%. So, I mean, if you wanted to get good income, that's not good income. That's uh, loss of principal. And the, uh, the, frankly, remember, the yield doesn't make up for it. So that's what I'm concerned about that. And we don't really know what they're investing in, which is always worrisome to me. Michael in Kentucky. Michael. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I'm a, long time, I'm a long-time listener. Okay. Uh, Jim, I want to I ask you your thoughts in regards to the alleged mismanagement of funds by company insiders at the Canadian Can- Cannabis Distributor Afria, APHA. Yeah, you know what? That's a very complicated one. I know there are people who are, uh, these are charges that are being made by short seller. I come back and say, look, there's only one, if you want exposure to cannabis, the only one I really trust is Canopy Growth. It's listed here. It's got a big investment of 50% from Constellation. I don't recommend any other cannabis stocks. And I, re- I actually know, of course, cannabis stocks are going down, but that's the one I'm recommending. May I go to Brandon in Illinois, please, Brandon? Hey, Jim. I know Transocean has been beaten down, but oh, yeah. I was wondering if it was a good investment. I know low oil prices can cause deflation in the market. What are your thoughts about buying rig? I want to tell you not to buy rig. Schlumberger came out with some very disappointing news today. It yields 4.5%. It's got a great balance sheet. It's down 34. Transocean is second rate. 
compared to Schlumberger. I don't even know if they would disagree, frankly. So I do not want you to do that. Schlumberger has been a terrible position for my charitable trust. I never thought I'd say that, given the fact it's been one of the great positions that I've liked since 1982 when I first met them. So, no. No to Transocean. Right, right now, we have maximum uncertainty when it comes to a trade deal and when it comes to the Fed strategy. And today's sell-off reflects just how worried folks really are. It's one part apprentice, one part deal or no deal. No deal. Well, man, buddy, tonight it was a tough day for the market, and the oil sector was no exception. I'll sit down with the CEO of Marathon Petroleum to see what's ahead for the stock. Then, today wasn't just a decline. It was a freefall. I'll tell you why few were willing to take the other side of the trade. And after today's more than 10% decline in the stock, is Coupa still a cloud prince, or has it become more of a pauper? Thank you, Mark Twain. I'm talking with the CEO, so stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Support for this podcast comes from Pluto TV. Need an escape? Drop into Pluto TV for a world of free TV. Stream hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and shows all for free. Yeah, free. No subscriptions, no fees. Binge on 24-7 channels of Narcos, CSI, Star Trek, and everything from hit movies to the latest news, comedy, live sports, and more. Download the free Pluto TV app for Android, iPhone, Roku, or Fire TV and start watching now. Pluto TV. Drop in. Watch free. Man, on a brutal day, we're trying to get our heads around the terrible action. But here's a question. Have the oil refiners come down enough to be attractive here, or could the group have even more downside if the recent breakdown in crude? Consider the case of Marathon Petroleum, the best-run refiner in America, with a nice catalyst in the form of this acquisition of Endeavor, which closed on October 1st. Yet as oil prices have plunged, Marathon stock has been crushed down more than 20% since the beginning of the fourth quarter. Is that right? Now, refining is a margins game. Over the long haul, these companies can thrive in an environment with lower oil prices, but in the short term, major dislocations can do some damage. That said, we, we got some very good news today. Marathon's Investor Day, they told us that they now expect $1.4 billion in annual synergies from this combination with Endeavor, up from $1 billion originally. I thought that was astonishing. So should we view the recent weakness in the stock as a buying opportunity? Let's dig deeper with Gary Heminger. He's the chairman and CEO of Marathon Petroleum, straight shooter. Here with us, give us the insights that the professionals got at his annual Investor Day. Mr. Heminger, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to, good to see you, Gary. Thank good you to see you. Sure. Have a seat. Thank you. All right, first of all, I want people to understand that when you put these two companies together, there is just remarkable amount of savings, and you're incenting people to make it so there's even more. We are, Jim, and uh, we set up a uh, synergy incentive program, and as you stated uh, just a second ago, we have now, we believe we have the potential up to $1.4 billion of synergy, but in order to be able to capture that, we need everybody involved, not just the executive management team, but everybody in the company. So the entire incentive compensation program, this is gonna be one of the largest metrics, so everybody in our company will be part of this program going forward. Well, there is a belief that I think you can express maybe incorrectly that as oil prices go down, Marathon peach should go down with it. That's always, that, that is frustrating that you see the markets move because anytime oil goes down, that's cost of goods sold. And if your costs are going down, that should help margins 
in the short term and maybe even uh, on the longer term. And we're seeing that in the marketplace today. But uh, the, the market still, I don't think, recognizes uh, how those two fit uh, together. Well, let's use an example because you're everywhere. Permian Basin. Now, they can't get the price that we see for West Texas. Canada can't. Now, that doesn't necessarily uh, 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 accrue. They can get hurt by the but You might be the big winner in that. Well, we have a tremendous, you look at Canada, the Western Canadian Select, and we have tremendous pipeline space to bring that crude into our Midcon, and we even take it down to our Garyville and Galveston Bay refineries. So we can capture some of those discounts on that margin. The same thing from the Permian. And as you know, we're looking at some new big pipelines to take that Permian crude all the way to our Galveston Bay refinery and down to the, uh, the Western Texas uh, uh, export facilities. Now, you have a lot of different places. You have a Mexican strategy, but you also a gigantic convenience store group that people should like. We do with this combination of uh, Speedway and taking over the Endeavor sites, we'll now have 4,000 speedways coast to coast. And we're going to sell you know, through Speedway and through our Marathon brand about 16 billion gallons per year. So we're going to have tremendous exposure uh, all the way to the consumer. And that's where we really believe our integrated model will make a difference in the marketplace. I couldn't agree more. Now, you have a 2019 business plan where you say West Texas Intermediate, $64. One, how did you arrive at that? And two, what do the OPEC meetings mean to that price? Well, when we looked at West Texas Intermediate and looked at our whole forecast for the coming year of 2019, you know, we look at many different uh, forecasts and right. many different models. But we really believe, you know, the price is probably going to end up being somewhere 65 to 70 dollars in uh, 2019 on an average. I believe we've averaged almost 65 dollars, about 64.50 year to date in 2018. So we we think we're being conservative, looking at that number uh, for next year. So you think this price right now is an aberration? Slower price? Um, I I think the price will come up because I do. To your second part of your question on OPEC, with a meeting coming up later this week, I do expect that we're going to see. A, a pullback in uh, OPEC production. If that's the case, we'll see crude prices inch up. Okay. Now, uh, wealthy individuals, and I think everyone should accrue to them, but every, wealthy individuals love master limited partnerships. You have, I think, maybe the finest one, MPLS, yield 7.4%. People tell me there must be something wrong. Maybe there's something wrong with pipes, something going on in America that makes it so that's not sustainable. But you know better than anyone whether there's coverage for that. Well, you're right, Jim, and uh, you know this is a company. Um, you're right, 7.5 percent yield or so today, and we have one of the best growth growth profiles in all of the MLPs. So, you know, as we laid out in the investor program today, um, we expect a around a five to six percent increase in our dip distributions right. next year. But if we don't see that we're getting paid for that. I think the best thing to do is to possibly buy back some of those units instead of trying to, you know, we're not going to chase right. the market and chase the yield. If we don't get the yield for our performance, then we'll just buy back some mm, of the That's highly units. unusual, but I'm very positive, bro. Shareholder, let me ask one other thing. Uh, we've had tremendous market volatility. I've always felt that the key to combating that is to have a consistent dividend policy that makes it so that you buy more when it goes down. Your company is addicted to giving money back, isn't it? Well, we've had a, a very strong run, and uh, if you look at our total uh, cash flow yield, um, we've had a 10% return to shareholders twice the S&P 500, more than twice our industry peers. We've had a compounded growth rate in our, our dividend of over 26%. I expect that uh, the board, when we look at this in January, that we'll take another look at our dividend. But uh, as far as uh, capital return to shareholders, we've bought back 
about we'll we'll buy back here in the fourth quarter about seven hundred million dollars, and we expect to buy back about another two and a half billion of shares. In 2019. Again, very unusual. We have to recognize that vault. There used to be just these are big commodity plays. It's no longer that way because you're more specialized. Do you think the president helps or hurts oil when he says bad things about OPEC? And given the fact that Russia is not part of OPEC, but they're involved, does it, can that backfire? And why hasn't the president done more to make it so that FERC is more friendly on a, a regulatory basis to putting out more pipes, given the fact that's been one of his themes? Instead, he seems to focus on coal so much. Well, you know, the president has uh, been very strong in, in supporting our industry. Right. When, when you look at, uh, you know, permits for pipelines, he was the first to come out and the presidential order to approve the Keystone Pipeline. Now it's been held up in, uh, you know, by a federal judge. But, uh, you know, when, when I look at the president's theme to begin with in the beginning of his administration, it was he wanted to have energy dominance in the U.S. Right. And I believe that we are well on our way. We're the largest producer in the in the world today in in America, um, our refining system, I think, is second to none. The, the the U.S. refining system second to none of anyone in the industry. So I believe we're well on our way. Now I also believe we should still have some relaxation of some of these uh, standards, the renewable fuel standard, uh, the cafe standard that's being discussed. Um, you know, I think hurt the overall uh, light products market. And I believe that we'll see probably some improvements in those standards going forward. Excellent. Well, you have always been incredibly shareholder-friendly, the MLP, too. Um, it's just an amazing story. Congratulations on putting these two together. It was really smart. Thank you. That's Gary Hemingers, this chairman CEO of Marathon Pete. You know it's been the one I've been recommending for years. I feel even more strongly about it since the Endeavor deal. And by the way, again, the, uh, the MPLX, that's a very good yield, and I believe a safe yield. Man, money's packed. You have good break. The goal? Explain the 1990s in exactly 60 songs. Tupac, Warren Hill, You Oughta Know, Cream. The greater goal? Move past cheap nostalgia to something deeper and weirder and better. My name is Rob Harvilla. I'm a music critic at The Ringer. And whether you're full of teenage angst or you feel bored and old, whether you don't know the song at all or you know it far too well, my new show will take you through the decade one song at a time. It's 60 songs that explain the 90s. Follow and listen for free on Spotify. All right, what explains the severity of today's sickening decline? And we got to focus on this. Lack of buyers, nothing underneath, people paralyzed, flash crash. I heard all of these. It'll make a certain amount of sense. But there's something else going on here. Today was all about the rise of the machines. When I say machines, I'm not talking about tool and die metal benders or earth movers or even the T-1000 model Terminator. I'm not even talking about computers. I'm referring to what's known as complex programs or algorithms that say when something happens to one key indicator and then another key indicator flashes, you need to be ready to dodge a bullet or pounce on an opportunity because there's good reason to believe we're going to get a specific outcome. This stuff can be difficult to get your head around. So you know what? Maybe we should use an analogy that's a little less alien, not much more digestible. Let's talk football. For example, if you have the ball and it's fourth and one in midfield, for the longest time, coaches went with their guts. They went with their guts. They said, okay, what do we do? What do we do? Well, we got a punt. It's too risky. Get stuffed off 50 uh, if we don't get that yard. All right? Last year, though, with the Eagles in the Super Bowl, Coach Peterson found himself in that situation, identical situation, and he decided to go for it first down against the vaunted New England Patriots. It seemed like a very gutsy call. I mean, everybody knows you're supposed to punt on fourth and one when you're nowhere, right? Nowhere near the end zone. But in truth, 
There was nothing gutsy about it at all. Instead, Peterson had been looking at the immense amount of data, say the Bill James-style statistical approach to sports that's been taking the world by storm for the past decade, and the outcome showed, without a shadow of doubt, that you have to go for it. When you looked at the percentages, the conventional wisdom was just plain wrong. Peterson did the logical thing. What does that have to do with stocks? All right, simple. There are many money managers using the same approach. They have the machines calculate the percentages, and then they automatically obey the machines. So when, say, uh, the yield curve inverts, like I talked about at the top of the show, meaning short rates, uh, short-term interest rates are equal to or even higher than long-term interest rates, history says we're going to go into recession. That's what the percentages tell us. Not every time. But that's what the percentages say. Today, the yield curve inverted. And plenty of hedge funds have programs that say you need to sell the S&P 500 whenever that happens. Others have programs that say you need to sell all the banks when this happens. Why? Because historically, this situation has produced negative results for the bank stocks. And these hedge funds are trying to get out ahead of others who fear those negative results but just don't know they're going to fear them. It's a foot race. All because this inverted yield curve is a major sign that we could be starting a major slowdown. Think about it. When two-year treasuries are paying a higher interest rate than five-year treasuries, that suggests to some, well, that suggests serious worries about the economy's longer-term prospects. This curve, as they call it, overrides whatever you hear about good employment or consumer balance sheets or robust lending. It's predictive. Now, if you follow the charts as we do, we know that many funds will sell if the S&P 500 breaks down below its 200-day moving average. Again, because historically speaking, the outcomes are skewed toward further downside. Sure, it can step right back, absolutely, but it's not the most likely outcome. So the computer programs say sell before the others do. Here's the problem. There are now so many hedge funds using the same algorithm, same programs, there simply aren't enough investors willing to take the other side of the trade. If we all know that stocks go down on certain triggers, then who the heck would want to buy stocks? And that's how you get a day like today, where the market goes into free fall, when the percentages are against you and the algorithms are in charge. Even, by the way, ultimately, if we don't go into recession, and we probably won't, but that doesn't matter, nobody wants to try to be a hero and bet against them. Everybody's expecting a run on fourth and one. Martin in Michigan, Martin. Hi, Jim. Greetings from beautiful Canton, Michigan. I always thought it was one of the better places. What's up? Jim, prognosticators reason that with the trade truce achieved between the U.S. and China and the Federal Reserve indicating a more flexible position on raising future interest rates, the stage would be set for a Santa Claus rally this month. Now, after the market lost 800 points in one day, do you think Santa might still be coming? And if so, which sectors would most likely benefit year-end rally. Well, we don't want to take it off the table because we don't know. It's a fluid situation. We get a number this week that shows good growth, but uh, not great growth on Friday. Then people are going to reverse things. When we get some more players in but in this market, maybe people come in. There are a lot of companies that are doing quite well. Uh, but, you know, Santa Claus rally, let's just say that there are some Santa Claus rallying stocks like I gave you yesterday when I did my no huddle. And I'll refer to you to CNBC.com if you want that Santa Claus list. Let's go to Phil in New Jersey. Phil. Who are you, Dr. Kramer? Always glad to talk to you on a, after having a bloodbath on Wall Street. You're the best analyst. But well, I have a question. You know, I'm, I don't have ice water in my veins like I used to when I was running my hedge fund, but I, I got a good perspective. What's going on? I have a question for you. You know, I'm 42 years old. And, you know, you're a lot of different analysts, or I should say financial advisors, saying, you, you know, have a diversified portfolio. I have a diversified portfolio, as you always stress, and I always, always make sure right. I listen okay. to what you tell me to do. But the, the question is, a lot of analysts say you should have like 80% equities and 20% bonds. So if I have bonds in my portfolio right now, the way the market is turning bearish-wise, right. 
Am I too young to have bonds in my yes, portfolio? Yes, yes, yes. Come on, Phil. This is about actuarial tables. You are not going to be able to make enough money. Let's say we all live, you know, look, you could maybe live a really long life. 89, but Pop died when he was 92. Had he taken that strategy, he would never have had the money to live if he didn't want, if he wanted to retire. Of course, he didn't retire. He was working the last month he died. But you must think longer, longer term and not bet against yourself. Let's stick with a lot of stock. When we get to 50s, we'll change it a little. 60s, my age, we change it a lot, but not all the way. Tom in Florida. Tom. Hi, Jim. Tom. Do you think the tech sector is at a uh, discount after the recent sell-off? And is now the time to start buying? Well, I think a lot of people worry that they're slowing in cell phones. That's why Apple's down badly. Slowing in the data center, but it, it, it isn't slowing. So I think that cell phones are not so hot. I think that video games seems to be a little bit tepid. I think that Internet of Things, if it's involving with autos, it's a little light. But if it's data center and if it's, uh, by the way, cybersecurity, those work. Okay, the machines are very much in charge today. It's why we saw such a huge move down with few willing to take the other side of the chain. It had to do with the velocity of the move. What's where we have money at? While Coupa might not be a household name, it's certainly not coming out of nowhere. I'm going to sit down with the CEO and find out today's decline in the cloud price. And remember, I told you that's a strong area. Is a red flag or a buying opportunity? Then it's a company that came public in mid-October but failed to gain traction thanks to the recent volatility. I don't know. It's starting to look pretty good right now. Should you consider Anaplan? I'm talking to the CEO of the newly minted company. And you might be a familiar face in all your calls, rapid fire, in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. On a day like today, with the Dow plunging nearly 800 points, it's important to talk about the concept of sentiment. Last week, we saw a series of cloud-based software companies report fantastic quarters and their stocks surged into the stratosphere because Wall Street was in a good mood. Then last night, we got some strong results from Coupa Software, C-O-U-P, which has a cloud-based platform that helps businesses identify cost savings. They like to call themselves the sales force of expense management. And what happens? The stock breaks down, plunging nearly $8, 11% on a hideous day for the averages. Did Coupa do anything wrong? While the numbers weren't exactly perfect, they were pretty darn close. I think this weakness had more to do with a newfound sense of negative as investors freaked out about the murkiness surrounding the president's handshake deal with China over the weekend, along with this inverted yield curve problem I've been talking about. Plus, Coupa's stock had run into the quarter as the whole cloud cohort rebounded dramatically. But look, the company reported a nice top and bottom line beat, 42% revenue growth, mucho congratulations on the conference call. Management raised their full-year forecast big, finally allowing that, okay, they guided for just 26 to 27% revenue growth next quarter, which would be a meaningful deceleration. We're going to find out about that. But seeing as the guidance was totally in line with Wall Street's I don't think there's a problem. Truth is, this company's doing very well. And I bet we'll look back on this pullback as a buying opportunity eventually. But don't take it from me. Let's talk to Rob Bernstein. Now, Rob Bernstein is the chairman and CEO of Poopa Software. To learn more about the quarter and where it's at. Mr. Bernstein, welcome back to Mad Money. Thanks for having me, Jim. All right, Rob, I think you had the misfortune reporting on one of the ugliest days of the year. But I heard more congratulations for a great quarter than anybody this quarter, including Salesforce, including Workday. So tell us what you're doing to save some of these new customers, Airbus, Unilever, Barclays, money, because it's obvious you're doing something or they wouldn't be all using you. 
Well, thanks for having me on the show, Jim. Look, we're pushing forward on all cylinders with this business. You've seen the top line growth being exceptional. We're doing it with a very efficient focus on sales and marketing. We're seeing gross margin expansion. We're seeing subscription margin expansion. We're seeing scale to the business. And we're now managing nearly a trillion dollars of spend and management for companies around the world. You know, we took more than 100 customers live just this year. In this last quarter, we signed amazing customers like United Airlines, for example, who's going to be managing a whole host of spend through our platform, optimizing it and getting a great deal of value out of it as they think about uh, cost consciousness going forward. Now, let's take a company like uh, what Procter was one of your early adopters. Now, Procter & Gamble must spend a fortune procuring all sorts of different things. Tell us what some of the bargains you got for Procter are, because I have to believe that they have to be one of the largest organizations to procure, procure goods outside the military. Well, look, we're helping them source goods and services. We're helping them with contingent labor so that they can optimize the candidates coming into their company to help them. We're helping them streamline their expense management processes. We're helping them with our AI-based technologies to streamline invoice processing so you don't have to have all those people entering in data off of paper-based invoices. Every which way you can imagine getting spend and management for customers and helping them optimize it is what we're doing for them. And, you know, what we're seeing, Jim, is that our customers, they are really running a lot simpler, they're running a lot faster, and frankly, they're running a lot smarter with this set of business spend management solutions that we're giving them. Well, let me ask you, on so many conference calls I hear, listen, there's supply chain issues, we're spending too much money trying to get the product to where it is. If they brought Coupa in, would you think they'd manage to save a little money and wouldn't be bellyaching so much? Look, the time-to-value equation for Coupa is really exceptional. The A, the letter A in Coupa, stands for accelerated. So a lot of our mid-market customers, they go live in just a couple of months. Our large-scale enterprise customers go live in under a year, and they recognize meaningful value. And that's measured in billions of dollars, Jim. So the impact is real and is being seen by hundreds of customers around the world. This is the, the customer community we're building out there. It just couldn't be more exciting, to be honest with you. Now, you mentioned AI. For our viewers, that's artificial intelligence. Tell how, you know, a lot of people I'm probably think procurement. I mean, what, 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 what kind of intelligence is really necessary here? It's just going out making some phone calls. It's not that anymore, is it? Oh, wow. You, you would not believe what we're doing for our customers here. We have AI-based community intelligence. So we're looking at this hundreds of billions of dollars in transactional spend, and we're going to our individual customers and saying, look, there might be some risk with some of the suppliers that you're working with because we're seeing some of our other buyers in aggregate having risks with those suppliers. Or if you're looking for these commodities or these goods and services, these are the suppliers we think or we prescribe to you that you should consider because they're deemed as really being very strong by our customer community. And we're doing this in real time. So we're giving this, this information for them so they can make adjustments on the fly to optimize the way they spend. Really, enterprise software hasn't ever been able to bring this much community intelligence to bear for helping individual customers make decisions, and we're doing it in this business spend management area. Well, I've tell you, as a small business person, I'm listening. I know you're an enterprise, but this is what we all need because this is how we get our bottom line so that we're still making money even in an environment where we have to pay more for, for labor. I want to thank that's Rob Bernstein. He's the, C- he's the CEO of Coupa Software, which is one of those stories that I had not reported on a day like today. I think we've seen different results. Thank you so much, Rob. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Remember, the market sentiment is positive, negative, positive, negative. You have to have true north. You decide whether you want a great growth company and stick with it. That's what matters. We have money's back here for the break. 
It is time for the light round. And then the light round's over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the light round. Let's start with Alex in New Jersey. Alex. Hey, how's it going, Jim? I am doing well, Alex. Tough day. How can I help? Good. I hope I have the same energy when I get your age. I'm ah. like, uh, my stock is Booz Allen Hamilton, B-A-H. I like it at 40. What do you think? You know what? It's not a bad stock. A lot of people don't talk about it. I think it's pretty good. Now, I can't really, I like Accenture. All right? I like ACM. Really, a lot more. Let's go to Stu in Connecticut. Stu. Oh, hi, Jim. Uh, what's your take on TD connectivity? Oh, it's interesting. It's not great. It doesn't, you know, network solutions, got a little cable stuff in. It's not uh, compelling enough to be able to say that for me to pound the table. Let's go to Philip in California. Philip. Hey, Kramer. Booyah. Booyah. Hey, I like the renewable energy uh, area, and I found a stock with an 8% dividend. It's called Pattern Energy Group. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's got wind power. You know what? We're going to look at this. Anything that's north of 7 right now intrigues me, uh, but we're not going to just say yes to it. So we're going to do some checking to see if Pattern Energy's got the stuff to be able to support that dividend. Let's go to Rosal- uh, Ro- Rosalind in Maryland. Rosalind? Hi, Jim. Booyah. I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name, Rosalind. How are you? Rosalind, yes. How are you, Jim? I'm good. I'm it's good. Exciting talking to you. What awesome. a day, huh? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. J- Jim, I wonder how you feel about Barnes & Noble, BKS. It, it, look, I'm going to say something I, I typically wouldn't say, but it does feel like it's getting a bit or something because it just goes up, up, and up, and yet the fundamentals are not great. So I don't want to recommend a stock on a takeover basis, but I see what's happening, and it seems pretty positive. Let's go to Don in New York. Don. Good evening, Mr. Kramer. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. So, Adobe, a stock which I bought about a month ago, which was up 35 points right. yesterday. Now it's down nine points today. Short term, with earnings coming out on the 13th, is this a buy-sell? I I'm cannot recommend this stock on a short-term basis because what's happened is, is that, uh, and I've seen this happen during this period. Someone was mad at me that I recommended a stock at 180 and it went to 150, but I've been recommending it at 50. That's how I've been. That's what I've been doing Adobe. I recommended it at 50. It's in 250. I think you buy some and then you wait for it to come down because it, we're not going to play the quarterly game. The quarter's going to be good, but stocks aren't reacting to the quarter. They're reacting to the Fed. They're reacting to the president. That's not certain enough for me. Brian in Florida. Brian. Hey, Jim. Booyah from Booyah. Orlando. Booyah. <laughs> hey, I love your show, man. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, my fiance is a clinical pharmacist, and a while back she had me buy uh, GBT. Yesterday it ran up fifty percent, so I sold half. Yeah, uh, nice I, it's had a very big run, and it's coming back down. I think you sold half, and now portfolio management would say, "You know what? Let the rest run." I need to go to Sandy in New York, Sandy. Hi, Jim. How are you? Uh, Sandy, I'm uh, good. How about you? I'm from Long Island, and we watch you every morning and every night. We love you. Round the clock. What's going on? Yeah, we wanted to find out about Activision Blue. You know, I was in FEMA and with Jeff Marks, we were just going. I mean, it has to do with Call of Duty. Think people think it's not doing that well. I wish Bobby could have come on and that. Ladies and gentlemen, the of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
If a day like today should teach you anything, it's timing's everything in this business. For example, in the middle of October, when the averages were melting down, a feeling we're quite familiar with at this point, and the cloud stocks in particular had gone into free fall, a company called Anaplan, symbol P-L-A-N, took itself public. Anaplan is a cloud-based provider of what they call connected planning software. They help businesses connect the people with who matter with the data that they need to make decisions in real time. This fascinating company is growing like a weed that is revolutioning the way, revolutionizing the way the companies plan. Just see the stock came public at 7 in October, rose to 24.25 on opening day, and now, even after today's horrendous session, closed at $27.66. That's off only 30 cents. Let's take a closer look at Frank Calderoni, the president and CEO of Anaplan, and an old friend of the show, to learn more about his newly public company and its prospects. Mr. Calderoni, welcome back to Man Money. Good to see you, Frank. How have you been? Have a seat. Great, great. Thanks to be here. All right. So I think most people, when they think of planning, people watch the show, they think, all right, you sit down at the end of the quarter, you figure out, okay, how to go, what should we do? That doesn't work anymore, does it? No, it doesn't. I mean, I've been in the planning world now for a couple of decades. (laughs) It's amazing how how time goes by. But when you think about planning, planning has been kind of looking back in trends. Yeah. Now everything is changing so rapidly, you really have to react quickly. And you mentioned about real-time planning. Real-time planning is having information at your fingertips within large organizations so you can make better, faster decisions. And that's what Danaplan is all about. Okay, so you've been CFO of Red Hat. We've seen you there. You were CFO of Cisco. I saw you there. QLogic. It seems like whenever you... That your either stock goes up or you get acquired from this list. But you're also on the board of Adobe. I mean, do you think everybody, all these great, great, these are all great companies. Could they all use you? You worked at IBM for years. Could they use you? Uh, yeah, from a planning standpoint, yes. I mean, uh, again, we're, we're just uh, in the early stages of this transformation that's going on, I think, in planning right. uh, to really kind of be much more predictive. I mean, the, the key thing here is having information. It's the kind of connection of data, people, and plans to really kind of project the future, right? Forecast uh, so that you can react uh, with the, uh, based on the markets. All the companies you mentioned, uh, uh, many of them are customers or will be customers right. of Anaplan. Now, you are, uh, people might say, well, wait a second, what do they have that's proprietary? So I'm going to give you a chance to talk about hyperblock technology. So that, that's exactly, I mean, hyperblock is that proprietary technology that we have. It was developed by our founder, Michael Gould. Uh, Michael was in the planning space for so many years. He worked for companies like Adatum and Cognos. And uh, he went off uh, into his barn in the UK, and he was a mathematician. And so the key thing that he developed uh, in Hyperblock is the calculation engine. So and that's a big aspect. So, so it's sort of like, think about this like algorithms okay. uh, that allow you to use those calculations to predict based on information, data that you have in your organization, that allows you to be more accurate in your forecasting, in your prediction, so that you can anticipate what's coming and then be able to be ready for it and react uh, appropriately. And so that's what makes us unique uh, and that the platform. And and the other key thing is many people think about planning is, is financial planning. Right. We, we sell it as enterprise planning. Uh, it's planning that's used in finance, in sales, in supply chain, in HR. So it's like enterprise planning. And these calculation uh, capabilities are applicable, like when you're doing sales forecasting, sure. or a lot, especially in supply chain, where you're trying to be, as retail companies, trying to be reactive. You know, one of our companies is Carter's. Uh, they're the children's oh, uh, clothing sure. retailer, sure. right? Uh, so they've been using Anaplan now for a long time. And, you know, if you think about uh, Carter's, they've got uh, 250,000 SKUs, right? Okay. Different articles of clothing mm-hmm. that they have to plan for. And they have uh, tens of thousands of retail outlets around the United States. So getting that right mix 
of clothing. And the other thing which I found out in working with carters is they have to replenish their inventory every two to three months in order to be fresh and get the attention right. of their customers, right? So there's a lot of dynamics that's going on there. And so leveraging Anaplan allowed them to shorten their planning process, mm -hmm. improve on their accuracy so they have less inventory, and that right. improved, uh, uh, I think their number was like $25, $30 million of cash flow okay. benefit that they got as a result of being much more efficient. Okay, now one last thing. Uh, you, one, you could work at any company you wanted, but two, you're up against a company that I know you admire. Uh, you may say they're different, but work they bought adaptive. They seem somewhat similar. Are you guys going to head to head or are the products different enough that Workday does not uh, go uh, after yours and you don't go after work? So, so, so again, the industry is transforming. Right. And if you think about, just to put in perspective the size, um, IDC, uh, if you look at the planning, the, the more traditional planning, right. this year it's estimated to be about $17 billion of revenue, growing to $21 billion. We did a survey recently, our own, we commissioned a survey, to look at how many knowledge workers are out there that do planning in the different right. functions, 72 million. So oh. it, it's, it's a big opportunity, and I would expect that you're going to get several players in that space sure. as it continues to transform. So, uh, again, our, our platform, I believe, is very unique in that right. it's enterprise-wide. And, again, connecting uh, the organization, you know, supply chain into finance, Sales into sure. finance is, is really advantageous. Well, you're in a sweet spot. I can tell you that. And this is what companies need. That's Frank Calderoni, president and CEO of Anaplan. You should just Google where he's been. They're all the companies that we like so much of Man Buddy. Stick with Craver. You want to know when it's all clear? Well, it's never all clear anymore with the president like this, but RH was unbelievable, and the stock was only up a little bit. And waste management, sell to buy by a major firm, and the stock was down. RH and WM are the two stocks you must follow to see if we're going to get a turn, because they've got the wind at their back, and they should be going higher. And that's what you're looking for, is what should be going higher, and that will tell you if things are turning. Two stocks. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise it's fun just for you right here, man, money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.